Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and this is Stuff You Should Know. This is a really good one, too. I don't want to I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because we haven't recorded it yet, but I think this is going to be pretty good because it's very interesting and surprising and still kind of unresolved. Yeah. What city were you in? You don't have to tell me what you're doing, but what city were you in on December 31st, 1999 at 12.15 or 11.59 p.m.? Uh, I was in Hotlanta. What about you? Okay. I was there, too. Okay. Uh, that's when I lived in the big warehouse on the West End, and we had a big party, uh, probably the biggest New Year's Eve party I've ever thrown. And it was one of those parties where people come that don't know you. Oh, wow. And all of a sudden, it was like, all right, here we go. That kind of party. That's like weird science or 16 candles or something. <laughs> yeah, it was great. By, uh, the guy from the Hills Have Eyes showed up on a motorcycle. <laughs> the one who, the steps. who's also in Goonies. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that wasn't the guy from the Goonies. Are you sure? Oh, no, no, yeah. you're right, you're right, you're right. No, it was. I think it was. He was just in makeup. No, the guy from the Goonies was uh, football player John Matuzak. Right, same guy. Oh, that's the guy from the Hills Have Eyes? No, I don't know. I'm just trying to end up <laughs> you're right. really digging a hole. Yeah, I am. Oh. Uh, yeah, so that's what I was doing. I was throwing a big old party and uh, not worrying too much about the Y2K bug or – my bank account being empty because I didn't have much in it anyway, sure. or being s- stuck in an elevator or falling out of the sky in a plane. Yeah, it was a good time to be young because you didn't really care that much. Nah. You didn't have as much to lose as if you were like some, I don't know, middle-aged fat cat or something. You are probably sweating it a little more than you were like in your 20s at the time. There's probably so. Probably a lot of people who are listening to this right now are like, "What? you guys just said Y2K bug. What is that? And, uh, well, let Uncle Josh and Uncle Chuck tell you all about Y2K because it was one of the weirdest times to ever live through. And, Chuck, you and I were Cold War kids. Like, we, mm-hmm. we lived through a time where people thought, like, you know, we could go to a nuclear apocalypse with, with the Soviet Union at any given moment. It could just happen, yeah. everybody. That's how we lived. And the Y2K bug still managed to stand out from that backdrop. Yeah, so the idea was, and we'll get more specific, but the one-sentence descriptor is computer code in early days was written with just two digits, not nineteen fifty whatever, mm-hmm. uh, just fifty whatever. And the idea was that that was going to cause a lot of problems when the calendar flipped to two thousand, and that anything, like I said, from elevators being stuck to uh, Wall Street going down to elevators being stuck. I mean, <laughs> there were all kinds of crazy scenarios um, that you might or might not have worried about as that date approached. Uh, and that was the Y2K bug or the Millennium bug. And, you know, some people really, really freaked out. And some people took advantage of people freaking out. Mm-hmm. And some people didn't worry at all. And we're going to tell you all about it. Yeah, that was a really great elevator falling down pitch. Thanks. So um, the the thing about the Y2K bug is that if you hear about it today, you're going to hear a couple of different responses, uh, potentially. 
And probably the more prevalent of the two is that it was all just a big hoax, a sham. Right. Maybe a big money suck. It was a bunch of people just being paranoid. Um, and whether that was rightfully so the, or the paranoia was justified or not, you know, um, because of the situation or the context that this was happening in. We'll talk about that later. But every once in a while, you'll run into somebody, and these are the people you should probably listen to who say, no, it was actually a really big deal, or it had the potential to be a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And the reason it wasn't a big deal is because the world, I should say smart people in the world, got behind solving this issue, came together and solved this issue, and that it was only people who weren't really paying attention who saw nothing happen and said that was all just a hoax or a sham. And it's really interesting because to this day, depending on what media coverage you read, and I'm not even talking like left and right, I mean just like the author. Uh, it can change from author to author. Um, that Those two different approaches to the explanation will be will be used depending on who you're reading. And I just find that fascinating that we still haven't resolved it fully. Oh, yeah. Like you could go to any party, any dinner party, and bring this up mm-hmm. and, and get probably equal amount of those reactions, I bet. Yeah, get everybody really riled up. <laughs> um, all right, so I said that it has to do with computer programming. Mm-hmm. And in the early days of programming, like I said, they were not using the first two numbers of the year um, because they weren't just lazy. Um, those computers didn't have a lot of computing power. They had about one or two kilobits of memory, and it requires eight bits or one byte to represent a single alphanumeric character. So if you could save 16 uh, sorry, sixteen bits per operation that you're running by just not using 19, uh, then you're saving a lot of memory, like well-needed well memory. Yeah, I mean, like this is at a time where like – those bits were vital. Today we're just like drowning in in, um, in RAM and, and gigs. Yeah, and bytes. <laughs> so I saw somewhere that like a somebody went down the list of what a mainframe, a mainframe, like just the, those huge like whopper. room. Yes, basically, but like where there's a whole room full of whoppers, that mm. those things maybe had two gigabytes of storage, and just like some paltry amount of of RAM. And so just the you know it's such a cliche to say now that like you know we we like there's more there's more data storage in like a calculator that we use today than they used to to go to the moon <laughs> but yeah. it's it's absolutely true and so to save that 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 amount of data made a lot of sense but then the other thing that kind of legitimized that decision is that these people were writing code in like the 50s and the 60s and they're like this yeah. stuff is going to be gone like it'll have like, been someone will change this wiped out and like re, re- <laughs> built from scratch by the time this becomes a problem in the year 2000. And they were really, really wrong with that, you know, idea, which it makes sense that they would think that. But it turned out that it was really wrong because a lot of the software in the world that was running really important stuff, like things like financial markets or things that monitored drinking water purity or things that ran freezers that kept smallpox from thawing out, you know, like these were all run on software in a lot of cases that were built and kind of tar papered over with fixes and patches and expansions that that were originally created in like the the 50s or 60s. And that's not a good thing to figure out when you're like five years out from the millennium when this problem's going to actually happen. 
Yeah, and it also uh, was complicated by the fact that these programmers weren't all aligned on how to even enter dates mm-hmm. uh, in a uniform way. Some people used the uh, Julian format, uh, which is the two-digit year, and then the three-digit uh, count of the days in the year. So uh, January 1st, 1997 would be 97001, but not everyone did it that way. So it's not like you could just go through and say, you know, uh, 19.220. <laughs> I don't know, nothing about coding. Right. <laughs> but, you know, just some simple line of code that just basically changes everything in a uniform manner. No. And so even even in, like, the software itself, like, even if one piece of software did use the same kind of date throughout that one piece of software, um, that software, that code was written to accommodate, you know, X number of bits for a date. So if you just went in and added two extra digits for the date field, that could throw off everything else in the software mm-hmm. without any without you having any way of predicting what it will throw off. So if you went in and made that fix, it could create even bigger problems than... Than, uh, than if you just didn't make the fix to begin with as far as the software operating was concerned. Right. Uh, and the other thing we need to point out in, is that the fact that it was the, the millennium didn't matter. Um, it mattered, and we'll, and we'll get to the sort of cultural um, hysteria that kind of followed. I think that had a lot to do with the, with the fact that it was a millennium, but mm-hmm. it could have been 1800 to 1900 as far as the software knew and it would have presented the same problem. Exactly. That it was just the, the prefix was changing. And what the big concern was is that when it turned over to zero, zero, the computers hadn't been taught that that meant now the 21st century, now 2000, technically right. not the 21st century. Don't at me. Um, <laughs> but that they were going to go back to 1900, which yeah. is what they were programmed to think. And that that could cause all sorts of cascading events, uh-huh. everything from Chuck's fabled falling elevator to... Air, aircraft computers powering down mid-flight and just planes falling out of the sky. Yeah. Or computer just, I had the idea that computer systems were just going to go meep, 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 and like smoke would come out of them and the, everything would just shut down. Yeah. Power would go out. Mm-hmm. Your cable would go out. Mm-hmm. Like just nothing would work anymore. That was the way that everybody was touting it and talking about it. And it went even worse than that. People talking about nuclear warheads launching themselves or blowing yeah. up but like in their that. silos and that kind of <laughs> stuff. Like there was a real apocalyptic vibe to the to the public idea about it. But even to the sober, level-headed people who were actually working to solve the problem, you know, there's a big problem with a, a an airline computer, you know, resetting itself because it thinks it's 1900 while the plane's in the air. Or um, planes weren't around. <laughs> they, right, exactly. Doesn't Must compute. Crash. <laughs> the the other problem too, Chuck, is that they weren't sure if the computers reset themselves and like shut down, yeah. if they would have any way to get in there and start them back up again. Right. So it's not like, you know, uh, I saw somewhere, it's not like it was going to fix itself once, you know, it, it got like a couple seconds past yeah, midnight on 2000. That that wasn't necessarily a given. So they also, the other thing that really drove this this. I don't want to say it was, so there were two things that happened the the public was panicking the people working against it were like concerned and 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 actively managing it but for the people who were actively managing it and who were concerned um another thing that was driving it was well actually it was driving it for everybody <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm going to settle on that. Um, <laughs> that we had no idea how widespread the problem was. Yeah. Even by the mid to late 90s, there were like 40 billion microchips out there in the world doing their thing. We had no idea what percentage were going to be affected by the Y2K bug. We had no idea what missile guidance systems or what satellites or what, um, you know, ATM machine systems were going to be affected. So we had to dive in and figure out once people started getting this point across, like, guys, this is actually a thing. And apparently people were raising the flags, or at least one person was raising the flags um, as far back as the, the 60s and 70s, I think, right? Or the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and why don't we talk about him and some others right after this? Okay. So you mentioned uh, a light in the darkness, a man on a mountain mm-hmm. That's right. proclaiming this could be an issue. And that man uh, in the 1970s was Bob Bemer or Bob Beamer. And he was a he really played a big role in the creation of uh, ASCII code. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was the first person. And this was in the 1970s, like I said, to, to actually write in papers like, hey, you know, this could be a problem down the road. This is something we should probably take a look at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're a um, a blockbuster video, you're probably not going to really try and get ahead of this too much. You can probably start working on this in like 1997. If you are the financial sector and you are Wall Street, you're going to start working on this in the 1980s because there's just so much more at risk. Mm-hmm. Somebody's late fees running up is not a very big deal. You can correct that. But the financial market not being open or available or crashing is a really big deal. So they started throwing uh, a lot of money at this in the late 1980s uh, in the financial sector to try and correct this ahead of time. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, later we'll see later on in the after effects, they credited this um, basically, the upgrade that the the New York Stock Exchange dedicated itself to in the face of the Y two K bug as the same reason why the global financial markets didn't like their systems didn't collapse um, after September eleventh. Yeah, that because of this. Pretty cool. Yeah. So um, if Bob Beamer was the first old hermit prophet who came down from the hills to warn everybody, um, Peter De Jaeger was the guy who got all the press for it. Um, he was the one who really basically dedicated his life to making sure that everybody was good and scared about this. The public, <laughs> no. the public, but also, you know, the people who were like pulling the levers of government, the people who were running the corporations, the people who were running the financial markets. Like he, he met with a lot of different people, um, gave a lot of different scary presentations. Um, I saw that he would... Like, it, it wasn't just some pat presentation he gave everywhere necessarily, too. I saw he met with the Canadian government and was trying to get the get across, like, this is a really big deal and it's a really big problem and you're not equipped to deal with this as it stands now. This is a new thing for you. And he pointed out that the Canadian government, 
meets its deadlines, its its uh, deadline goals for projects 16% of the time. He said, this cannot happen. Like, you can't miss this goal, this deadline. Um, so he would, like, kind of go in and, like, make it apparent to each each group based on their own needs or their own desires or their own perspective. Um, but he did that. He also gave lots of interviews. He was on 60 Minutes. Uh, and he made like, a bunch of money, during, I think, during 1998. He made... In today's dollars, something like two and a half million dollars consulting yeah. and giving speeches and lectures. But from what I understand, and he gets a lot of guff today, as we'll see. But from what I understand, he was a, a true believer who, in some ways, maybe saved the world from some really big problems that we 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 will never fully understand because we didn't experience them. Yeah. This is a hard one to judge in retrospect. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you judge the thing that didn't happen? Right, exactly. Is it a cry wolf or was it uh, – or did we slay the wolf? So Peter Yeager kicked the whole thing off of the 1993 article called Doomsday 2000. And in his in his um, defense, his editor probably came up with that, not him. Uh, you think? I, editors typically write the headlines, so – it's possible. Who knows? He could have suggested it. He was he was that much of a, a doomsayer for sure that he would have been totally comfortable with that. Yeah, and this is where, you know, the, the American public, like, eventually it made its way to 60 Minutes. And once Morley Safer is on there on a Sunday night mm -hmm. talking about it, then you know the American public is going to get on board. And they did, and it brought out some, some kooks. It brought out people, uh, preppers and survivalists. Uh, there were a lot of internet scams going around at the time. There was a lot of religious religiosity, um, sort of really heated up, like mm -hmm. uh, sort of doomsday preachers and stuff like that started coming out of the woodwork a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Anyone that thought that they could make money off of this thing uh, through fear kind of came out of the woodwork. And, you know, when something like that's happening, you've got that on one side, and then you've got a lot of people on the other side just thumbing their nose at it and saying, this is all a big scam. This is all a hoax. Look at all these kooks that are trying to get, you know, separate us from our money. Um, it's just a big scam and we don't have anything to worry about. It's weird. It almost sounds familiar in some weird way. Yeah. <laughs> like to what we've been experiencing, huh? Yeah, this is definitely like a, it was a peek behind the curtain of what could what could come. Although it was not nearly as stark, although... Uh, I, I I don't know. Maybe I wasn't paying as much attention then as I am these days. But it didn't. You definitely weren't. It didn't seem. No, that's true. <laughs> it didn't seem like you know there was anything approaching the incivility and just outright like yeah. anger that that we experience today, especially Agreed. you know in America um, compared to then. But there were there were definitely two sides to this issue, and they definitely were entrenched against one another. It just wasn't like. Neither side hated the other. They just thought the other one was dumb. Right. Uh, and, you know, one of the big reasons that it was such a big kerfuffle culturally was that this – it sort of – it was all about timing. It, the calendar flip aligned at a time where we were – computers were really becoming super, super entrenched in everyone's daily life. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you know, people have been using computers for a while, but as far as, like, really everyday stuff, like running – your bank through there and paying your bills and credit cards and acting as your own travel agent and the government, everything was reliant on computers by this point, kind of for the first, you know, this was the first big wave. Right. So 
as far and Ed made a good point in here, as as far as your average person on the street knows, is their computer comes to them in a box and they take it out and it's just a little magic machine that runs on fairy dust. Mm-hmm. And we know nothing about how it works or how it should work. And so all of a sudden, everyone has got these little magic boxes that they don't really understand that they're super reliant on. Mm -hmm. And there are people out there saying, things are about to get really bad with your magic box. Yeah. And And a lot of people are just like, all right, I guess it's time to freak out a little bit. Yeah. I mean, people definitely did freak out. And and I think it also, I think part of that freak out is kind of like you were saying, like the Y2K bug is the first time it was revealed to us just how dependent on computers we become. We we never really saw that before. But, you know, before up to this point, it was all like, gee whiz, you know, like my insurance claim went through 50 times faster than it would have five years ago. Mm-hmm. Instead, now it's like, you know, we're th- these all these things that we're dependent on are about to pull the rug out from our civilization. And that, that, that really kind of got people scared, even if people weren't sitting there analyzing it. I mean, we're analyzing it in hindsight. At the time, people were just scared, freaked out, nervous, angry, upset. Um, But then the fact that this was taking place already during a major calendar change, not just from— from, you know, the 1900s to the 2000s, but like a new new millennium, you know, um, that— that really kind of had people already primed. So just the weird timing of the whole thing. Like, you remember how big the X-Files were? Yeah. Imagine the X-Files now. It'd be like a ho-hum. Some people would watch it. Some people would be really into it. You know, it might make a little splash there for a little bit. But the the X-Files was one of the biggest TV shows in the world, at the very least in the West, because it was super tapped into this millennial, and not the not the mm-hmm. generation, but just like the the end of this era or the new era, that this angst that everyone was carrying around to some degree, whether you were aware of it or not, you were worried. Some small part of your brain was worried because the calendar is about to change over to the year two thousand. Yeah, I think the show that does that best now is Black Mirror. Definitely. Uh, I loved me some X Files, but I'll I'll take Black Mirror over X Files oh, any day. Yeah, it, it's really tough to rival Black Mirror. It is, and I know people, boy, X Files people are going to be so upset. I loved X Files. I did. Yeah, no shade to Mulder and Scully. I just watched them the other day. It still holds up. Yeah, it was a great show. It was a lot of fun, but a show of its time. Right, exactly. Man, um, the, those overcoats they wear were gigantic. <laughs> they were big. Oh, my God. Shoulder pads. Yes. They were so – everybody was walking around like David Byrne and stopped making sense. Yeah. It was a little weird. Yeah. Um, so the cost of this thing was going to be pretty big. It ended up being pretty big. Uh, it depends on who you ask. If you see numbers on the internet of $500 billion – that is probably not true. That probably came from people that were consulting saying, you know, it may cost up to $500 billion to fix all this and all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were spending tons of money. There are like, uh, I think there's an article from the 1999 Washington Post that talked about General Motors spending about 625 mil, Exxon about a quarter of a mil, I'm sorry, a quarter of a billion, mm-hmm. Procter and Gamble, 90 million. So, and, you know, the, then the federal government has to spend a ton of money on their own systems. So it it added up to many, many, many billion, tens of billions of dollars. Let's just say that. Yeah. Also, I don't want to let this opportunity pass by without shouting out contemporary journalism. <laughs> 
One other thing, Chuck, though, the, uh, the U.S. Senate conducted a special committee investigation on, into spending on the Y2K bug, and it came up with what I, what I can tell is the, um, the most widely accepted number at the time. And what is it? This is, $1999-$2,000. $100 billion were spent in the United States alone. Okay. And that about 8.4— Private and public uh, yeah, sectors? Yeah, about okay. $8.4 of that was by the U.S. government. Okay. Um, and that, again, that's in $2,000, so it would be substantially more today. And that the U.S. is almost certainly uh, the the largest spender on this issue because we were also, at the time, the most dependent uh, c- country on computers or the country that was the most dependent on computers in the entire world. So we right. had the most to lose. We had the most to gain by spending this money. And the Senate report concluded even— within three months afterward, that it was money well spent. Yeah. Well, there you have it. Case closed. Case closed. Although I should uh, probably say that to the end. <laughs> um, in 96, uh, the Congressional Research Service uh, said, you know what? We need to do something about this. Mm-hmm. And Senator Daniel uh, Moynihan went to Bill Clinton and said, hey, we need to do something about this. So Clinton launched the Council on Year 2000 Conversion. Uh, Congress passed the Year 2000 Information and Readiness Disclosure Act. And um, all this sounds very fancy, but uh, Ed is quick to point out, and we are as well, that you know the government can't get in there and just fix all the bugs of all these companies. They got to take care of it themselves. Uh, so a lot of it was just hey, you got to get on this, like you got to get ahead of this. You're on this, right, uh, stock market, and you're on this General Motors, aren't you? And um, sharing information for sure, but um, a lot of it was just kind of cheerleading. Yeah, Um, and I mean, that worked, like getting people, you know, kind of snapped in line and saying like, hey, the the U.S. government is telling you this is a real problem and you need to do this by this time or else you're going to have some big troubles. That gets people's attention for sure. So, you know, in that, in a lot of senses, that was enough. But the government also had all of its own systems and uh, software to look at and go over and make sure that it was um, uh, in working condition or fixed if it needed to be fixing. And then they reached out and helped other countries, too. Um, I saw that, I think, starting in 1996, they started an exchange program with uh, Russia to make sure that nobody was going to accidentally nuke anybody else. Right, <laughs> yeah. And as a matter of fact, on the uh, the um, the turn of the millennium, there were um, U.S. observers and Russian observers in one another's countries, just basically to work together to make sure that this, this got all worked out. But I think also it's just kind of a show of faith, like, you know, we're not going to nuke you or we're not going to let you get nuked. Our own people are there kind of thing, too, right. which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, other uh, countries took a little more strict approach. Uh, The Dutch Central Bank said, if you, uh, we won't loan money to companies Mm -hmm. who weren't compliant. Uh, China said, you know what? All the top airline executives have to take flights on January 1st. Um, And, you know, (laughs) so you better make sure your stuff is running correctly. Yeah, think about that. The, The nation or the government ordered. Yeah, airline executives to to Fly be somewhere. in the air at midnight, um, or they would, I guess, probably go to jail. Yeah, and uh, that sounds harsh, and it is, but I think it is an interesting incentive to say the least. <laughs> it's pragmatic, at least. You know, make sure your stuff works, everybody. Um, but the the Y two K compliance 
is what I was talking about. That was you, you like you could buy products around that time that said Y2K compliant. Like it could be a clock radio that says Y2K ready. Mm-hmm. Um, all kinds of products were labeled Y2K compliant. Mm-hmm. Certainly anything to do with computing. Yeah, and there was actually nobody watching to make sure that that certification was actually <laughs> accurate. There was there. I think the Defense Department put out some like some guidance and on what to do to be Y2K compliant, but they were like, find it, fix it, all good were the steps. Like, they were that vague. There was yeah. nobody certifying it. And to me, yes, cheerleading from the U.S. government and raising awareness and maybe lending aid financially, um, that was some really good roles that it played. But I feel like also it could have said, hey, if you're running this kind of operating software or you're or you're producing dates using this time, here's a good fix you might be able to use or right. to create some sort of Y2K compliance guidance or steps. I feel like it could have done a little more in in that respect. Um, but there was nobody, like you could have bought anything and it could have had that sticker on it and it really didn't necessarily mean anything. That's right. And Chuck, there were some other governments had different responses. I saw that um, the uh, that Canada had 13,000 troops readied um, on high alert just in case the, the S went down. Yeah, that was part of Operation Abacus. Yes. Uh, there's a really great Globe and Mail article called Y2K, The Strange True History of How Canada Prepared for an Apocalypse That Never Happened <laughs> but it. Changed Us All. It was a really good article. It was good. And then one of the other things that Canada did was the CBC sent a pair of engineers to a remote broadcasting station with um, – with like some video, which I would love to get my hands on, I couldn't find it anywhere. That would that they were to broadcast instructions on how to survive post-apocalypse. Basically, that was their job. Oh wow! Yeah. So everybody's sitting there ready and waiting, and it's finally December thirty first, nineteen ninety nine. And whether you're ready or not, it's all about to click over, right, Chuck? That's right. So uh, we'll take another break here, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about what happened on. December 31st, 11.59 p.m., 1999, right after this. What what happened, man? I've been on pins and needles for 120 seconds. <laughs> Not much, actually. Some stuff did happen, but for the most part, nothing really happened. I mean, for for you or me or just about anybody else out there, the 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 millennium came and went, and the Y two K bug fizzled out like a dud. That's right. I remember waking up uh, late in the day on January first, hungover. My everything worked. My phone worked. My power was on. There were no planes falling out of the sky. I would rode that elevator up and down all day long. But some things did happen. Uh, and like I mentioned, video stores, uh, you know, sometimes there was one in Albany, New York, that had a, assessed a late fee of over $90,000 to a customer. For the general's um, daughter, no less. <laughs> oh, is that what it was for? <laughs> yeah. The movie? Yes. That was the <laughs> rental. Oh, boy. I think I actually saw that for some reason. Yeah. It was Travolta, right? Yeah. yeah. 
the intervolta that was in the post pulp fiction boom mm-hmm. uh let me see there was uh, a national uh laboratory nuclear weapons plant in tennessee had some mal- malfunctions i think there was some other nuclear malfunctions in japan but nothing big obviously or you know it would have been catastrophic mm-hmm. Uh, but really, mostly minor things happened. Yeah, there was uh, like 30,000 cash registers in Greece that were all running the same software, showed that, that the year is 1900 on receipts. Like, nothing particularly bad. I think in the U.S., the, the um, most jarring thing that happened for the government was some spy satellites were, they went offline for three days. But for the most part, people were able to see what the problem was, deal with it, figure out a solution or a patch, and then bring the thing back online with minimal interruption or problems. And the fact is that these the interruptions that did happen were typically pretty small, pretty inconsequential, and were dealt with pretty quickly. Yeah, in uh, England, in Sheffield, England, the National Health Services came under fire because there was a misreading of uh, the age of pregnant mothers, I believe 154 women uh, in the program were affected. And, you know, they were getting testing, uh, like prenatal testing to see if there was a chance that their baby could have Down syndrome. And it led to two pregnancy terminations and four births of children with Down syndrome. And for the life of me, I couldn't find out if there were lawsuits or what I just saw articles that talked about penalties against the NHS, and it's one of those things that was really hard to find in any kind of follow up. Right, that was not one of the inconsequential ones I mentioned. No, obviously not. So um, the the fact that, and from what I could tell, Chuck, that was far and away the the most consequential outcome. Everything else was usually pretty, um, you know, either inconvenient or aggravating comical, yeah. like the guy who got the $91,000 late fee for his video tape. Um, but the fact that, you know, aside from the NHS um, issue, the the fact that it was generally small stuff that happened, m- for some reason, made the public say, oh, well, this was all just a hoax. It was all just a scam to suck money out of our preppers' pockets and um, get us all riled up and scared and probably control us with George Bush's new world order that ministry talked about. Um, and that the, the whole thing was was all just, just hooey, that we were all riled up for nothing, which I think goes to show that, that the public, by and large, is a dum-dum. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I think we're seeing that now. Because Ed makes a great analogy here. He says, Hey, um, if if the Y2K bug had been a flood and we spent hundreds of billions of dollars in countless work hours building a dam to hold back the flood, when that flood arrived and the dam held, you wouldn't say, well, I didn't get wet, so the whole thing must have been a hoax. And yeah. that, that is almost a, a perfect analogy for what happened in retrospect with the Y2K bug, a crisis that would have been potentially really huge and catastrophic, was averted. And rather than saying, hooray, we did it, we pulled together, people just kind of said, you guys got me all upset for nothing. Nothing happened. Yeah, I mean, let's say that they, um, let's say it was all just minor problems that they didn't bother to fix beforehand. And all of a sudden, instead of a few minor annoyances and aggravations, there are thousands of those. And those compound on one another somehow, 
and create sort of a domino effect. Uh, it, it's not just that they they corrected the main systems like the financial markets and the nuclear codes and all those things that they needed to correct. They they corrected a lot of stuff that had a downstream effect just to make our lives a little less disrupted. Um, people looked at Italy at the time. They were a country that didn't do a lot and they didn't have a big fallout. But other people who were a lot smarter and don't make knee-jerk reactions said, yeah, but you know what? Italy's really small compared to us. They weren't nearly as computer-reliant at the time as we were. And America was fixing their stuff, which helped fix stuff for all of the world because they were reliant on us and our systems. Mm-hmm. That's right. So so there's a pretty good argument you could make for all those people who are like, no, it's totally fine. See, those people didn't do anything. They Boo. they got a free ride, basically, because so much of the software that America was fixing is used around the world. That's a really, really important point for because that's that's a that's a point that a lot of people make. They'll point to countries surprisingly like Japan. I, I can't believe it, but Japan did very little to deal with it. And like you said, there were some minor problems at uh, some of their nuclear plants. But the the fact is, a lot of them benefit. A lot of those countries benefited from the U.S. leading the way on this. Yeah, and one of the strategies that other people who didn't think we should be pouring all this money into it beforehand was called fix on failure. They said, why, why don't we just wait and see what happens, and then we'll start to correct things as needed. But that that's just not a very – like, we didn't know what we didn't know, like you said earlier. Mm-hmm. We had no way of knowing what it was going to cause. And so – Fix on failure was not a viable option because trying to patch something that is in chaos all of a sudden is not the best way to work. No, I mean, like, this is about to date this episode, but the Spirit Airlines problems <laughs> of, of like, the last, like, week or so is a really great example. Oh, man, there was some problems with shifting crews around because of weather, and all of a sudden some flights um, started um, being ready without the crews, and then that led to more crews being shifted around. And it was just this cascade of flights where they were every day canceling 50, 60% of their flights and just leaving oh, wow. people stranded. And it was a really great example that um, the uh, what was the name of the pipeline that got uh, cyber attacked? For, oh, with yeah. ransomware, that's a, that one. That was a really great example of like of just these you know people waiting in line for gas around the the whole southeast and the east coast for mm-hmm. a week uh, more than a week. Like it's it's like at the time at Y two K, the idea that like we could have just fixed this stuff really kind of shows their naivety for how how embedded or how we didn't really understand how embedded we already were with computers and and how dependent we were on them. And you can't fix a nuclear missile guidance system after it fails, you need to do that ahead of time. So that fix yeah, on failure idea tried. Was, it was a pretty bad idea from the get-go. It was. Uh, you mentioned, you know, one of the good things that came out of this was the fact that post 9-11, uh, our financial markets didn't crash because, largely because of a lot of the work they did for Y2K and making those systems more robust and updated. Mm-hmm. And that happened kind of across the board. Like, The investment that a lot of people, I think a lot of people and companies are like, well, I guess now is as good a time as any to really just sort of update everything and to get our systems, uh, you know, more, um, you know, up to snuff for today's, you know, some of the stuff was still running on code from the 70s that had been built on and built on. So that really helped drive the tech boom in a lot of ways in that companies were investing a lot more for the first time uh, in tech. And also they, you know, there were 
hundreds of thousands of new developers that were trained and hired to deal with this. And they were all of a sudden were looking for jobs and some of them didn't find jobs. So they got creative and started writing apps and writing code for other programs. Mm -hmm. And it really fueled uh, not only here uh, in India, I know it was a really big deal that um, their IT industry now compared to where it was then, is just like night and day because of everyone that got hired to help with Y2K. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Like they make the case that the the tech boom was a result of people coming into this industry who wouldn't have otherwise been there. And also the spending. The spending was just ridiculous because not only were people hiring IT people to fix their software, like some companies were like, forget this, we're just going to completely upgrade our systems. Yeah. And these systems could have kept hopping along or hobbling along for another 10, 15 years, say. And then that system would have had to have been replaced. And then some other company does it another five years earlier, five years later. Rather than that, the, the United States and actually in a lot of ways, the world's computer systems got upgraded all at once. And that kind of laid that foundation with, you know, the industry being flush with tech workers to just really take off, which is great. I saw in that same article about that Senate report, Chuck, that that said it was money well spent. Somebody estimated that for every dollar spent on fixing the Y2K bug, it led to a return on investment of about six or seven dollars. Whoa! And that was an estimate in two thousand. Now today, in in hindsight, if the the Y two K bug drove the tech booms that started in the early two thousands, late nineties, like it's just it's it's countless. It's probably in the trillions of dollars worth of value that it, it led to. Totes. So I think we kind of busted that myth in a way, didn't we? Kind of like the world of worlds radio broadcast. I think so. As usual, Gen X is correct. (laughs) Go Gen X. Uh, If you want to know more about how Gen X rules, uh, you can uh, go onto the internet and look at this thing that we built called the internet and um, learn some more stuff. What do you think of that? I think it's great. Since I said learn some more stuff, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this Bob and Girls from our Child Labor Podcast. Hi, guys. I'm Amanda Marusars. I'm a longtime listener and love everything you guys do. In your child labor episode, you mentioned you were unsure of the dangers of working as a bobbin girl or boy. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. I'm from Lowell, Massachusetts, where they claim the Industrial Revolution was born. Mm-hmm. If you're from this area, in elementary school, you visit the Boot Cotton Mill Museum for school field trips. We learn about the history of uh, and cotton weaving processes of the time, uh, something that always stuck with me. Being a little girl at the time of these trips was the Bobbin Girls. They recite a list of horrors that these child laborers went through, from getting their fingers snapped off in the weaving machine crevices, to getting their hair caught and essentially getting scalped. <laughs> Man, I knew so it. Have it. I totally knew it. There was going to be something really horrific about it. Uh, just wanted to polish off your episode with the most graphic details that seven-year-old me could remember being plagued by. <laughs> that is from Amanda Maru Sars. Very nice. Thanks a lot, Amanda. That's Exactly what I assumed was out there, so thanks for filling in the blanks for us. I love it. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us like Amanda did, especially if you love everything we do, like she says, uh, we love hearing from people like that. You can get in touch with us via email at stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.